Hello, and welcome to the Take is Directed podcast. I'm Steve Morrison, Senior Vice President and Director of the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. Today, we're delighted to hear from Dr. Christopher Murray, a pioneer in the world of global burden of disease measurement. Chris currently directs the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, or IHME, at the University of Washington, based in Seattle. Chris joins us in Washington today for a public event at CSIS focused around the landscape of global funding for HIV AIDS and universal health coverage and the launch of the latest installment of IHME's annual report on global health financing. Chris, thank you for taking time to join us for this event and for sitting down with me to talk a little bit ahead of time. Great to be here, Steve. So first, um, let's talk a bit about your own history uh, and how we how you got to this point. Um, this past September marked the 20th anniversary celebration of the first global burden of disease study published in The Lancet in 1997. That study and the many that followed applied a new indicator to measure burden of disease, which you had developed earlier in the 90s, relatively early in your career as a professor at Harvard, called the Disability Adjusted Life Year, or DAILY. To begin, could you first explain to our listeners what made this indicator and ultimately the GBD, the Global Burden of Disease Studies, unique and important in, in, our, in, in this work that we all are part of? So the idea behind the Global Burden of Disease actually started with the World Bank. It started as a project or a background project uh, to help inform the World Development Report 1993, which was the first time the bank had written a high-level policy an analysis for health. And the team working on it realized there wasn't really useful uh, or, or comparable information on what were the main health problems. And I had been very interested in this topic uh, even during my graduate school days uh, and really quite f uh, fixated almost on how do we make sense of what are health problems, both things that kill you and things that uh, make you sick or disabled. And that was uh, the genesis of the global burden of disease work. And so I think there's you know, the, the two dominant themes there, one is we need to have good data on a diversity of health outcomes. And I think there's been enormous progress in the last 20 years of the sort of statistical methods, the data, you know, the, both the primary data and the way it's analyzed. And then you need to make sense of it by pulling it all together with some sort of summary high-level measures. And so years of healthy life or DALIs uh, is, is the measure that came out of that work mm -hmm. and has caught on and has been sort of an still is pretty widely used, I think, uh, to get that big picture. And, and that allows you to also drill down and look at the details when you want to see those details. Okay. Now, the next step was in 2007, 10 years after the first Lancet report, you launched the Institute, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. You had an initial core team of three members. And 10 years later, 11 years later, I'm, IHME now boasts a staff of over 300. Uh, can you tell us a bit about how IHME was able to develop in this way? What drove this astonishing growth, and, and how do you look back on what is, clearly you were, you, you were addressing some unmet need and bringing together a new set of expertise and perspective on this. So it, it yeah it's it's been quite um, astonishing how much we've grown. We're actually getting close to 400 uh, today, and 
you know, the, uh, on the one hand, the, the reason for the growth is simple, which is we've been incredibly fortunate to get, uh, you know, strong support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and from Bill and Melinda themselves. Uh, and that's been critical for the growth. But I do think we have filled uh, a need, and that need is that in a world of messy data, whether it's about health outcomes or about health finance that we're going to be talking about now, or for that matter about health systems and how they respond to, to the challenges that uh, different populations face. Uh, health data is, you know, filled with missing information, inconsistent information, lots of obscure coding practices and lots of detail about different disease outcomes. And I think we've over the years built up a sort of core competence in being able to make sense of this messy data and turn it into something that's useful. And then, uh, you know, we benefited from the revolution of computational power so that some of the things that you could only imagine doing statistically, you know, mm -hmm. sort of the Bayesian methods we use these days, are possible and they weren't 20 years ago. And so that's made it easier. And, and once you get that infrastructure in place to bring in the data, process it in a highly standardized way, make it available to people, put it in data visualizations, uh, we've been able to expand the scope of what we do sort of progressively over mm -hmm. time. And I think that's also fueling some of our growth. So what, what was the greatest problem that you faced in putting this all together in the last 11 years, 10 and a half years? Uh, that's a great question. I think there, you know, at the at the at the detailed level, there's just this huge array of technical problems that, and we've been very fortunate to recruit a lot of bright, dynamic mm -hmm. people who are, you know, pretty innovative and in coming up with solutions for all these detailed technical issues. I think the biggest problem we've had uh, that to overcome is just to put these pieces together. The, you know, the expertise on analyzing, processing, archiving properly data, the, the expertise on sort of statistical sophistication and the expertise on, on making it available to people mm -hmm. through, through data visualizations and publications. Because in each of those areas, there's, there's great expertise out there in the world. There's, there's you know, lots of groups or individuals who, who do great work. And what we've done is sort of put that all together mm -hmm. in a way that, that, that sort of works. But as you're pioneering this, you're going to you're going to break some eggs along the way, right? You're going to make assertions. You're going to develop new methods. You're going to stir a debate where the debate didn't exist before. So, what have been the debates that have come out of this around methods and around uh, because you're you've become such a major force in this and you've done something that others had not done before. Yeah, I mean, pretty much every aspect of what we do steers to, stirs debate, uh, and in many ways, particularly the scientific debate, uh, is a, a great stimulus for improving what you do. And mm -hmm. so we've, you know, even going back to the beginning of, of the burden of disease work 20-plus uh, years ago, there's the debate about uh, do, you, do you even want to have coherent, comparable numbers, or do you just let countries report what they have? Do you want to have summary measures that may steer people's perception of priorities by the way they're constructed? You know, and there, there's been a very rich debate. Uh, I think there's more than 500 articles now in the, in the ethics and philosophical literature just about DALIs, as an example. Yeah. Yeah. And then when we come to the empirical part, there are debates in, in many areas that we touch on, whether it's child mortality or maternal mortality. Uh, 
and less debates on some of the things where we're the, sort of the sole source right now for information. But it, w it would take a lot of time to go through all the debates. And I think part of uh, what we've been able to do around the GBD part of our work mm -hmm. is uh, build a very inclusive model of producing uh, the analysis. So w we provide the sort of computational engine at IHME, but the GBD has become this collaboration of, you know, 3,200 investigators in 145 countries. And we brought a lot of that debate into the process. And we built up a set of rules about how we solve debates within our, our mm -hmm. collaboration. And so, you know, we've sort of uh, progressively formalized how we uh, embrace and encourage the scientific debate while trying to, uh, you know, insulate the analysis from, the, from country or global politics uh, in the sense not of setting priorities because we want to be responsive to what policymakers want, but trying to avoid you know, political agendas changing the numbers. And so, uh, you know, I think that's been part of the, the interesting challenge here, which is mm -hmm. how to build this model where we embrace the debates that are out there. Well, certainly from here in Washington, having the, the data available and updated and annualized in the financing study is terribly valuable for us, you know, because, because what you're doing is you're painting a picture that clarifies and sharpens up the awareness of where the dollars are going, what the returns are, what the burden looks like, what's the evolution. Let's talk uh, about the work that's coming forward. You've today you're you're unveiling uh, some very a very interesting analysis of both the HIV legacy and and patterns as well as the universal health coverage. Let's talk first about the HIV AIDS analysis, you've chosen something quite different, looking at a single disease across 188 countries over many years. So it's across time, it's across the full spectrum of countries in a single disease. So that's low prevalence, extremely high prevalence, it's wealthy countries, it's low income countries. Um, tell us a bit about why, first of all, you did that, and then give us sort of the top line conclusions or messages that come out of that, particularly with reference to low-income countries, which, which here at the Global Health Policy Center remains the, 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 the major preoccupation. So I think the, the, what we're trying to achieve in our financing work, and we, you know, this is uh, an ongoing body of work, this is the, the ninth year that yes. we produced our financing global health analysis, is that we would like to progressively broaden the scope so mm -hmm. that we started off looking at what, you know, the rich countries were, were spending on, on yes. health in, in poorer countries. And we recognized that for many of the policy discussions, sort of the critical ones are not, you can't look at the development assistance in isolation because it's really about, you know, graduation. It's about the transition as some countries get richer. It's about how do we handle changing priorities that, that, that are reflected in the SDGs. And you can't make sense of that if we can't also help people track what governments spend of their own money and what the private sector is spending. Mm -hmm. So our ambition, and this represents one step in that direction, is to, to track in the same granular way we have been development assistance for health all the spend that's out there. And we took HIV as the first uh, mm -hmm. extension of this work. And so this really, this, this analysis has, uh, you know, the usual tracking of development assistance, 
it has our attempt to sort of uh, sharpen and clean up this total spend by governments and by sorting through, mm -hmm. you know, what are the primary sources or not. And then it has this analysis around HIV. And of course, HIV is very salient right now, given that we're at this sort of critical juncture in the epidemic where spend does appear to be going down on development assistance for health and has been for a few years. And so we really want to know how countries are responding to that. Yes, well, you, there's a couple of dramatic facts. I mean, you are able to document that the development assistance resources available for HIV declined almost 24 percent since 2012, reached a peak, I think, in 2013, or around 12 billion, now down to 9.1 billion. And the implications for low-income countries are pretty dramatic and pretty profound. Can you say a bit about that? Yeah, if you look at the the total spend for HIV, yeah. you know, you it's staggering, right? Yeah. At, the, at the global level, you know, it's half, half a trillion billion. dollars, which yeah. is it's a big number. Uh, and but of course, the sixty five percent of that is actually in high income and upper middle income countries, where there's much less burden from from HIV, of course. And so when you drill down and look at these trends, the development assistance for health is dropping off. Um, it, you know, total development assistance is flat and the HIV amount is going down. And that's largely because maternal and newborn and child health is expanding. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've had this sort of what I think of as the great crossover. Because if you mm -hmm. think about, you know, not so long ago, there were everyone was looking to HIV as, well, why do they get all the funds and our right. area doesn't? And now that's no longer the case. It, it, uh, we, we've had that switch. But what we're not seeing as the development assistance for health goes down, we're not seeing the gap being filled by government right. funds in, in low-income countries. Right. You are in the upper middle income. Mm -hmm. uh, sort of, uh, It's a mixed bag in lower middle income, but in the low income, definitely not. Yeah, you, you do make the case that the annual growth of, of health spend in low-income countries is pretty modest, right? It's under 2% annual growth, which is compares with lower middle income countries much higher, 5.4%. Um, and the dependence on external resources in the, in the high prevalence and extreme prevalence countries, mostly in Africa, still about two-thirds of the dollars that go to HIV coming from, coming from external donors. And higher than that in, in a number of, of particularly poor countries with high prevalence. You know, take a, a country like Zambia, it's, mm -hmm. it's more like 85 percent yeah. is external. So it, very much so. And, you know, if you look at the trend of government's own spend per capita, it's about 2 percent. But the total is actually going up more, but, you know, they still have very substantial population growth. And yeah. so while they are increasing spend, yeah. uh, when, when you take into account population growth is so much higher in the low-income mm -hmm. uh, world, uh, it's very slow per capita progress. I mean, one point that is a, is a very dramatic point that you make in the analysis is that the, the really heavy surge of spending, 2000 to 2010, over 11% annualized growth. Um, the surge in that spend was of, of donor dollars was concentrated in the areas where it was most needed in, in high and extremely high prevalence states. And it actually mitigated the crisis that was growing at that time, that you can make the case that the, the mobilization that happened 
was one that mitigated a global pandemic crisis. Now the question is, are we setting ourselves up for a rebound in this next period when, as you point out, the decline is being felt um, uh, in, in, in the development, the decline of the HIV investment. It's felt most powerfully in those countries that need it the most, and you have a demographics trend that is a pretty harrowing uh, projection as well. And people are very nervous right now of what the risk and vulnerability of a rebound looks like. Would you say that, you know, sort of embedded in your analysis is a kind of tacit argument that if we're not really careful, we're looking at, at, at a dramatic resurgence of a crisis? You know, Did I think you the, go so far to say that. The, uh, the, let's start with the first part of your comment, which is uh, the scale up of funds for HIV yeah. and the dramatic reduction of death rates due to yeah. HIV is, you know, one of the great successes of yes. collective action. You know, it's true. It, it transcends even health. It's not yeah. just a global health success. It's really quite extraordinary that it happened and had such an impact. Now we're in this phase where. You know, the world has been quite successful at reducing the death rate from HIV. If, as, and, you know, there's all the things that are out still to address and re reaching the youth that have lower rates of ART coverage. And there's still an agenda there, but really quite successful. Not so successful at reducing incidence. There's been some decline that's related to the natural epidemic curve, but it's harder to know how much decline there is above and beyond that. Right. So we still have lots of new infections. People living now, fortunately, because of ART. So there's really no indication that uh, we're, you know, that we can get by with less resources. And yet that's the reality we're facing in, in the fiscal front. So the big question, I think, is can you, um, what can you do to, to right. sort of slow down that decline or, or reverse it? I don't know. Uh, what can we do about understanding how to, deliver treatment more efficiently? And is there something on the horizon to be more sort of proactive on, on prevention of, of new infections? So yes, I think that the, the, we really need to pay attention to HIV. There is, uh, th this combination is not a, not a great one uh, going forward. I think that the, you know, it wasn't so long ago, maybe two years ago, where, where most of the, the discussion was about the end of AIDS. Right. And, uh, and that's a, you know, a visionary ambition and, and to, to be, you know, applauded. But the risk of that, of course, is that if you start talking about the end of the, uh, the end of AIDS and there are all these other needs in global health that you can actually fuel further decline in the sort of resourcing. And we're certainly not at the end of AIDS right now. Right. And you can also fuel misperception and complacency. Absolutely. Um, which is uh, one thing that we're struggling with right now. What do you see as the as the where the debate will turn now? I mean, the the countries themselves don't have the pockets to dig into themselves. So where do we turn in this moment of time? The U.S. has has been able to remain relatively stalwart in this period, thanks to Congress. There have been declines, but not as precipitous as people had predicted. Others have exited at a faster rate in terms of donors. So what, what's your thinking now around, if you were to offer advice around a strategy, uh, a two- or three-pronged strategy of beginning to deal with this emerging reality, which people are beginning to understand the gravity of it and the specific drivers of what's happening? 
So I would broaden this out, uh, you know, beyond HIV in some sense, yeah. uh, which is what's the trajectory for the low income and maybe the, the lower half of lower middle income countries where there's no real prospect in the next 10, 20 years that they're going to finance all that they sh yeah. need to finance in order to even sustain or the sort of progress they've been making in health. Yeah. And I think it comes back to the uh, creating more demand in countries and in the donors for doing, you know, strategic investments in health and education. Mm -hmm. And I think it rolls back to the sort of argument that Jim Kim at the bank's been making lately, uh, mm -hmm. that there's a moral argument for investing in health, and that's mm -hmm. been very powerful for, for HIV. But there's also a good, a sound economic yeah. argument. Yeah. And I think Jim's initiative around human capital mm -hmm. uh, is one, I wouldn't put all my eggs in one basket, but it's one thing that I think may help as the evidence does look reasonably compelling that investing in health and education actually is an important determinant of productivity of the workforce. Mm -hmm. And if you can bring that front and center to both the donors and to uh, ministries of finance and, and heads of state, I think that can be one useful way to, to bring you know, the, the value of, of health, investing in health back to the center as it was, let's say, in around about 2000. But, yeah, I think the, the various types of arguments that can be marshaled to, you know, point out the value here uh, is something that we've got to keep working Thank on. you. Let's talk a bit about universal health coverage. That's emerged as the central focus of WHO under the leadership of its new director general, Dr. Tedros. It's a central facet of the discussions here in the World Bank IMF spring meetings. Tell us what you've found in looking at the question of financing of universal health coverage. So there's sort of uh, good news and bad news in, in, in the sort of uh, empirical analysis. And it's sort of the starting point of, of the, the second uh, study here on, on UHC and, and future of, of financing. On the good news front, there's long been this argument that there is not – there isn't compelling evidence that uh, government spending on health has any effect. Mm -hmm. But we don't find that. When we look at the relationship between universal health care service coverage, which is this amalgamation of a package of, of mm -hmm. services, uh, there's a very clear relationship with public spend or pooled health spending. So, you know, excluding the out-of-pocket part. Uh, and so that's that's good news because we find by focusing in on service coverage and sort of uh, which are much more related to how the money is spent than some measure like life expectancy, you find a much clearer signal there that, that spending does matter. So that's the good news part. Does matter in terms of, of improving UHC service coverage. Yes. You spend more, you get more on average, right? There's lots of variation and inefficiencies, but the, on average, very clear relationship. The issue there is, you know, what economists call the elasticity. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. namely, if I increase spending 10%, how much is my UHC service coverage going to increase? Well, it's 1.4%. Mm -hmm. Meaning, if you flip that around, if I want to increase UHC service coverage 10%, I have to increase spending by 71%. Right. So, and, and you know, this is the sort of reality that we all know about health systems, which is that they're expensive to move up 
and, yes. and expand the scope of services it delivered. And you know, it's once you're through the sort of simple low-hanging fruit, the sort of vaccination of children, mm-hmm. you know, bed nets, uh, you know, even you know, treatment of TB, a few other things that are highly cost-effective. You actually, UHC as a much broader encompassing construct is rather pricey. And so to expand UHC, we have to spend a lot more money. And then when you combine that with, you know, a wide range of forecasts, and we use the sort of, you know, state-of-the-art ensemble modeling type approaches to predict both what are the, the range of trajectories for GDP and what are the range of trajectories for development assistance, for government spend, for private spend, uh, for pooled you know, private insurance. Put that all together and then translate that into Im- improvements in, in UHC coverage. You know, on with all that, those relationships, we would expect an extra billion people by 2030 to get at UHC. Mm-hmm. But that's way short of mm-hmm. the incredibly ambitious SDG agenda. If we take Dr. Tedros's agenda in his general program of work 13, the GPW 13 that he's framed as a strategy document, goes to the assembly for approval in May, he wants to add a billion more with UHC in the five years of that document. And that means, you know, from our analysis, we've got to sort of increase the pace by two and a half to threefold, depending on how you count and all those sort of uncertainty intervals. So that's an ambitious goal to accelerate progress on UHC, and that's not going to happen through spending a whole lot more than what we're already forecasting. Right. So it, it really means the focus on, on that acceleration has to be looking across the experience of UHC and, and figuring out how you do it more efficiently. And it begs the question, where is this mysterious money going to come from? Well, This I, is a fairly <clears throat> staggering bill. Right? It's a large bill, but to I think reach you, that, to, that accelerated spend is well at that. It's not going to come from more spend than what we're forecasting. I believe. Mm-hmm. I think to really achieve that vision, we're going to have to look across the huge range of how efficient different systems are at delivering UHC at the same price, uh, and learn some lessons from that mm-hmm. because. Even taking into account our forecasts of where spending is likely to go, and even if you were to sort of, you know, take what we, we create two scenarios, a worse scenario on spending and a better scenario. Even in the better scenario, we're going to fall a lot short. So it means that there, we should try to achieve the better scenario, particularly in low and lower middle income countries. But that just won't be enough. It has to be also some uh, improvements around the efficiency of, of service right. delivery. Doesn't that suggest that we're going to see a greater, an increase, a widening differentiation between different categories of states as we move ahead? In other words, some lower middle income countries will be able to make the transition uh, successfully to expanded. Others are going to fall behind. I think it's inevitable that in all the sort of visioning exercise of the future or quantitative, you know, sort of scenario building, uh, even going far beyond UHC, there is this phenomenon that we see of the sort of tail of the distribution where there's little evidence in the last 25 years of progress and there's no particular reason to think that there's going to be, you know, great acceleration in those certain countries. Some of it's Francophone West Africa, some of it's Central Africa, handful of other countries. 
but it's remarkable how there will likely be, if you take World Bank income groups, given population growth and, and economic trajectories, probably still a billion people living in low-income countries uh, or, or more at the end of the SDG era with probably pretty poor health outcomes. Right. So we're looking at a more conspicuous um, and dramatic ghetto, in a way, of the lower income populations. I think what, you know, we, we've, we, this comes up in last year, I think, when we had this discussion in, in the forum here about financing global health. I think there are this set of, set of countries that have proven uh, r resilient to progress in some sense uh, that are going to be increasingly the sort of biggest issues for the future, of mm -hmm. both in terms of inequalities and in terms of just outcomes and in terms of people living in poverty. And I think it really needs a rethink about what the global community can do to help those particular yeah. places. Tell me, how do you think that the, the analysis, the scenarios you've developed, the projections that you're making, how do you think they're going to be received in the emerging debate about all of this? Uh, I don't know, because I think there, there's, there's still a tremendous amount of, there is not yet a convergence or consensus on what is UHC. Mm -hmm. There's not a convergence or consensus about levels of UHC service coverage or financial risk protection. And, you know, just slowly, there's, there's not even a clear consensus about, you know, what is good practice or not from governments in terms of how much they finance of their own versus what they can get from, from donors. So there's a lot of, um, you know, work to be done to even get to a shared, you know, empirical understanding of what the past has looked like and, and therefore a basis for the future discussion. It reminds me a lot of where we were on, on, on descriptive epidemiology in 1990, right? Uh, that there's just very different uh, numbers that people are talking about and using, mm -hmm. and, and it matters because we're, it's hard to have a coherent set of debates because there's just such, you know, lack of consensus on, on, on the, the current state. So it really needs what happened uh, on the descriptive epi side, you know, the, on, on the global burden of disease and then, mm -hmm. you know, other people's work as well, to forge a sort of more coherent understanding of, of where we are now, what have been the trends, and therefore set us up for a, a more constructive discussion. Where else do you think the best analysis is emerging right now and in, in, the, in the effort to create some kind of common foundational understanding uh, of UHC as you've described it? You know, I think the, the, the main actors there are clear. It's, it's uh, the World Health Organization, and I think under Dr. Tedros's leadership, they're going to do more and more on UHC, and, and they're going to upgrade their, you know, analyses and, and efforts. And, of course, the World Bank has been a central actor in, in some of the descriptive analyses. You know, most of the work on financial risk protection is coming out of the bank. Um, and th that... There's, uh, you know, those are the two main actors out there. And then as the Global Burden of Disease Collaboration has done more and more empirical work about health systems, the database that's been created on outcomes and financing has started to be used to measure UHC. So that's an, a mm -hmm. third third axis there. And then there's, you know, a, a, a quite a diverse and vibrant uh, research community. But I think that even across the bank, WHO and the GBD collaboration, there's very different views of the numbers right, right now. And we right. really need to forge more of a coherence and consensus. There. Thank you. 
One last question. What would the, in, in a kind of simple, straightforward way, what would your messages, your two or three top-line messages from these analyses be to the, to the Trump administration and to Congress at this particular point in time? Uh, I think, you know, American leadership has been critical, um, you know, starting in, particularly in the Bush administration, in fueling the, the scale-up of global health mm -hmm. response. That had huge impact. Uh, it's, it's a great American contribution story. to the world, a great American success story. And we should not lose that that success, and we should accelerate it and, and advance it. And in the grand scheme of things, the amount of money that goes for global health through development assistance for health is actually pretty small, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of the global economy at whatever it is, $90 trillion. Uh, so I think that not losing sight of that, that, that we should build on our successes uh, in, in global health, and that there are opportunities here if you think about disaffection within this country from people who are sort of left out of, mm -hmm. of, of progress, we have that phenomenon globally, and it's not, it's not going to go away. If anything, you know, if you look at any of the scenarios or any of the quantitative forecasts, that phenomenon of a, of a large and rapidly growing populations in settings that are very far from enjoying the fruits of, of sort of global progress is, is going to grow and the needs U.S. leadership in response to try to help avoid that. Uh, you know, we do face a continued problem that the sustainable development goals themselves are not necessarily embraced or understood very well in Washington, and there's a certain skepticism. Um, we also face the reality here that universal health coverage in our own deeply polarized domestic health debate gets caught in that swirl and so trying to get people to think clearly and see the, see the reality of the value of the sustainable development goals and what it means to talk as you say get a common foundational understanding of UHC it's a special challenge here here in Washington in the United States more generally to sort of push that and I think this is very helpful this should be very helpful I think I would hope I know lots of very thoughtful, smart people who are deeply skeptical about UHC because nobody will tell them what it is. Mm -hmm. And I think that's addressable, right? Mm -hmm. I think you can, at the one hand, say that every country is going to define their, their benefits package and, mm -hmm. and how they want to deliver it, you know, mm -hmm. private sector, public sector, all that diversity. But you can say that there's certain core services that pretty much everybody would agree that mm -hmm. you should a good health system should be delivering. Yeah. And if we could be reasonably precise about what those are, I think you could move some of the skeptics uh, into being, you know, more supportive, mm -hmm. you know. And I think the way the language that may emerge around that is sort of the, the sort of common core of UHC. Mm -hmm. And if we can define that and be very clear, I think then you can make this, you know, construct that's very appealing also appeal to some of the skeptics as well. Well, thank you for joining us for today's episode of Take As Directed podcast featuring IHME director Dr. Christopher Murray. Thank you for being with us, Chris. Thanks, Steve. Thank for your interest. To our listeners, if you are not able to attend today's event, Global HIV AIDS Financing Amidst Uncertainty, you can watch the archived video and catch up on our latest publications and upcoming events at the CSIS.org Global Health Policy Center 
program page. Be sure to visit healthdata.org to find IHME's Financing Global Health 2017 report. That's visit healthdata.org. And take advantage of their multitude of data visualization resources. And as always, we invite you to subscribe to Take As Directed so that you never miss our latest episode. Thank you.